So today we're going we're gonna to continue our series on difficult questions. Uh, last week, for anybody who wasn't here, last week we covered old earth versus young earth. Uh, and we, we learned some principles to really work through on, on that question. We're going to kind of continue today. We're going to talk about evolution versus intelligent design. And I wanted to start off by just pretty much saying why we're even talking about this. I mean, just, it's not, not just for intellectual curiosity. Right? The reason we're getting into these questions is, uh, number one, some of these questions are stumbling blocks for you guys. Right? They've been stumbling blocks for me in, in my past. Uh, and they, they are presently can be stumbling blocks for you. Uh, and even if they're not stumbling blocks for you today, they may be stumbling blocks for people in your lives uh, that God is sending you to. And so these are really common questions, common concerns people have that can prevent a, 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 a healthy relationship with Christ, that can prevent surrender, that can prevent that kind of step of faith. And so that's really why we're doing this. We're wanting to equip you for your own faith walk, but also so that you can be the resource, the, the helpful guide to others uh, as you go throughout life. Uh, I, I want us to understand as we go through this entire series, but especially last week's lesson and this week's lesson, uh, that science and Christianity are not at odds, right? You do not have to pick a side. You do not have to pick which, you know, we, you don't have to pick whether or not I'm going to believe in science or I'm going to believe in Christianity. Uh, we put labels on science that actually aren't true. Science is a process. But those two things don't have to be at odds. And, and I hope you see that today as we go through evolution and intelligent design. So here's what I'm going to do today because this is a meaty topic. And a couple of you have asked whether or not I'm going to cater lunch and dinner so we can get through all of this today. Uh, and so I've got limited time, but I'm going to try to get through this in a way that makes logical sense. Uh, I really hope this makes logical sense. And so what we're going to do, I'm going to read a short section from the end of Genesis chapter 1 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 2 that's going to actually help us understand what God actually says about the creation of man. I'm going to give you three ways to think about the mechanisms of creation, three different ways that people... There's a lot more than three, but I want to give you three ways that people understand how man was created in this world. Uh, I want to go back to last week for just a second and review a few of the principles we established last week and give you some time to discuss those principles in terms of how in those three ways we can think about creation. And then once we get past that, I'm going to give you a couple more thing, ways to think about this. Uh, and I, I want to really challenge you to, to adopt a couple more principles to really go through to think about this question, but also some other questions that will come. So I'm going to start off, I want to read Genesis chapter 1. So I'm going to start in verse 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 5, it says this, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, 
For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This, uh, there's other passages in the Bible that talk about the creation of man, but, but this is really what God's telling us. This is, I mean, he's, he's not giving us this massive biological review of the creation of man. This is the words, this is the wisdom that God has given us. And so people have been grappling with how to actually understand this for thousands of years, right? Thousands of years. And so what I want to give you is, is kind of the three most prominent views today of how people understand how God created man, right? And, and the very first view, I want to give you the current scientific consensus. So the current scientific consensus is the theory of evolution. And, and, I want to, and we're going to kind of go theory of evolution, there's going to be a middle view, and then there's going to be a view over here. But if we start all the way over here with the theory of evolution, uh, this, is, this traces itself back to Darwin, and, and so we understand the theory of, of, of evolution to have a couple, a couple main themes. Uh, one is that all life is, is, is really traced back to kind of a, a common ancestor. And processes, natural processes of mutation and natural selection occurred over long periods of time uh, to, to develop life as we know it in all organisms. And so the... The most important thing about the current scientific consensus of evolution is that it is all natural. And when I mean that all natural, it, it, all truly naturally occurring processes. What has attached itself to Darwin's view of evolution and continued scientific thought on evolution is a worldview that has come along with it that if evolution can be explained by all natural processes, then there are only all natural processes, meaning there is no divine watchmaker, right? If you, if you kind of go back to the, the view of the world prior to Darwin's theory of evolution was that there was this intelligent clockmaker or watchmaker uh, who was putting all the motions in place and was maintaining the clock as it went on. Uh, but, but the theory of evolution attaches with it both a scientific view and an ideological worldview that says all things can be explained by scientific reasoning. All things can be explained by nature. Right? That's, that's really where we get to. That is the current scientific consensus, and I'm going to get into a number of things as we go through the principles about why that is and some challenges to that, but that's a very, very common view, a natural uh, evolution, right? A natural uh, theory of evolution. You then get the view over here, right? So if we start kind of natural scientific view, you then get the view over here, and that would be intelligent design. And intelligent design is the understanding uh, that, that if you look at all of creation, it appears as if there is a designer to it. Right? Everything is very, very complicated, very complex. Uh, it appears that within the DNA of structure, right, that there are, uh, that there's an intelligent designer to things. 
And, and, and what we would uh, subscri- ascribe to that worldview in Christianity is that that intelligent designer is the God we understand who has revealed himself through the Bible. Right? And I'm going to get into a lot of details on intelligent design here in just a moment. But I want you to see the two, the two bookends here for a minute. A natural, all processes come from a common ancestor through mutation and, random, and, and natural selection uh, to arrive at where we are today. And then the view over here that there is an intelligent designer that is creating all things, right? Then there's a view in the middle, right? There's a view in the middle that, would, that, that I'm going to call today, I'm going to call it theistic evolution, right? And, and there's a number of things that this is called, and there's a number of subcategories. You may hear it called creationary evolution, but theistic evolution Meaning, and, and the best definition for theistic evolution would come from Francis Collins. He's a leading Christian in this movement. And he would say that, that theistic evolution would state that, that biological science that we see and call evolution is real. So evolution as biology is real. However, this, this process of evolution was set in motion by God and is under the direction of God. Right? So, so theistic evolution attempts to bridge what the scientific consensus is and what we understand from the Bible as the word of God, that God is the creator, that God is a personal God, that God is sovereign, that he is the creator of all things. Right? So theistic evolution says we look at science and we think that is the best explanation for what we see in biology. And so to, to help us understand how that can be true and God's word can be true, we understand evolution as being guided, created, started, and guided by God himself. Right? All three of those views that I just talked about, or, or at least the first two, the natural theory of evolution and then theistic evolution, both of those views would assume an old earth position like we talked about last week. Intelligent design could make sense in both old earth as well in a young earth uh, scenario. Right? If you are a young earther, if you believe the earth is anywhere between 6,000 to 50,000 years old, you have to believe in intelligent design. Right? You just can't get there through evolution. Uh, but you could be an old earther right, and still believe in intelligent design, and I'll get to that in a minute. But I just want to, do, do those bookends make sense? Right, Natural scientific view, a middle view that says, the science is true, but God is the one orchestrating it all. And then something that really goes against current scientific consensus, not all scientific consensus, but the majority right now, that says God is sovereign and he is the intelligent designer behind the creation of all things. So those are the three views I would talk about. Two of those views I would say is Christian, right? Theistic evolution and intelligent design, you can make Christian claims in those views. The theory of evolution as a completely natural process with nobody behind it, that is not a Christian view, right? You can't, you can't get there in Christianity or else God's word is not true. That he was the creator just isn't true. So, so I want to I talk through first uh, because people are actually more familiar with evolution than they are the ideas behind intelligent design. Uh, you've been taught a lot more about evolution. I've got a couple of questions. It's like, hey, I go to the museums and I see all this idea of evolution occurring. Uh, but you don't actually know a lot about what the science is behind another view, which is intelligent design. 
Uh, and and I, would, I would explain intelligent design a little bit like this. Um, Sir Isaac Newton, uh, among other leaders in the scientific revolution, including Descartes, they would say that the physical laws that they had uncovered revealed the mechanical perfection of the workings of the universe to be akin to a watch, wherein the watchmaker is God. And there's, a, there's some leading voices in the intelligent design movement right now. One is a guy named Stephen Meyer. And uh, I'd encourage you, if you ever want to Google one person that you can look at that's an intellectual, that's an academic in this field, Google Stephen Meyer. I got to meet him. I've got a picture with me and Stephen Meyer. Me, Cole Fakes, and Stephen Meyer uh, all had our hands around each other. It was, it was, it was a fun day. Uh, but, but Stephen Meyer's a really interesting guy. Uh, he wrote a book called Darwin's Doubt. Uh, and he is not, like I said, he's not, he's, he's not a subpar intellectual. He is one of the smartest men you'll ever read. Um, and he makes a very strong case for the science behind intelligent design. And he makes a few points, and, and I'd encourage you to read some of his books if you ever get a chance. Uh, but he makes a point of, one, if you look at the DNA of cells, the DNA of cells almost look like the most advanced algorithmic micro, uh, supercomputers you could ever find. And as you go through and you understand how every other creation we, we observe, whether it be true supercomputers or algorithms, we find that in all those scenarios, that complexity can only exist with someone intentionally driving that complexity. And so even if you accept that the initial cells, you had common ancestors that started, that started uh, procreating and giving new life, the theory of evolution has a very hard time describing how life itself began to exist. And so, but in intelligent design, you can look at the actual coding of DNA and you can, you can really conclude that there has to be a designer behind it. He also looks a lot about complex systems and probabilities. Um, he, he does some fantastic math on the probability of the Cambrian explosion occurring in any way other than through intelligent design. And so the Cambrian explosion, if you look at fossil records and you look at um, a certain era in history where it appears as if organisms and creation exploded at a certain point of time, and, and the amount of organisms and creation that occurred in this certain amount of time that's in the fossil records, it is very difficult for you to, to be able to mathematically compute that occurring through a natural selection process. And so he goes through and he'll, he'll work through the math on those different things, work through the, the, the complexities of the probabilities to help you see how actually the more logical answer is that there is some sort of driving force behind this, not just random mutation. And then he gets into the physics of the universe and has some great conversations around the physics of the universe. And I want to read an, an excerpt. Uh, he says this. He says, Even extremely slight alterations in the values of many independent factors, such as the expansion rate of the universe, the speed of light, and the precise strength of gravitational or electromagnetic attraction, would render life on Earth impossible. Physicists refer to these factors as anth anthropic coincidences and to the fortunate convergence of all these coincidences as the fine-tuning of the universe. Many have noted that this fine-tuning strongly suggests design by a pre-existent intelligence. Physicist Paul Davies has said that the impression of design is overwhelming, 
Fred Hoyle argued that a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology. Many physicists now concur, concur they would argue that in effect the dials in the cosmic control room appear finely tuned because someone carefully finely tuned them. Right? And if you think about that, if you think about all the conditions that have to be exactly right for life itself to exist right here on earth, it is incredible. It is absolutely incredible. And personally, I step back when I think about that and I think about every aspect God had to have in his creation to make life possible. And, I, and it makes me reappreciate the gift he has given us with the, the majesty of his creation here on earth. But the most, what people attempt to do is explain that away in different ways. And, and there's some incredible thought right now in the scientific community on how this fine-tuning of the universe can occur without somebody driving it, being the driving force behind it. So to explain the vast improbabilities associated with these fine-tuning parameters, some physicists have, have postulated not a fine-tuner or an intelligent designer, but the existence of a vast number of other parallel universes. This multiverse concept also necessarily posits various mechanisms for producing these universes. I'm not going to get into all this detail, but here's what they're saying. And I, I've, I've listened to an incredible, incredible college professor try to explain this before. The um, multiverse concept is that there are infinite number of, of universes, of parallel universes that are existing right now, all of which, right, and, and, and they're getting to this because they're having a hard time reconciling the math, right? They're looking at the, the multiverse concept saying that with all of these infinite universes that are existing in parallel dimensions, right, based on how, how much probability you have of being able to have this many number of these things, you can then get to one that finally all the math comes together to create life, right? Because the probability is so low that without some infinite number of universe possibilities, you can't get there, right? You can't get there. Evolution really tries to understand how organisms relate back to common DNA ancestry. It has a hard time explaining life. Right? And so the fact that we're having conversations about infinite number of multiple universes in parallel dimensions as the most likely scientific conclusion of how to solve and reconcile this problem is an interesting thing. Right? I mean, that, that's an interesting conclusion. Uh, anyway, so, so I just want to say the scientific community grapples when you can actually kind of step back and say it actually the most logical answer is that there's a creator. All things start with a creating force. That creator is in the intelligent, he's the watchmaker who put the design in place. And we would understand that that watchmaker would put common elements of his design throughout his creation, right? And so we, we, can, we can actually more logically conclude, conclude intelligent design than we can other explanations for a lot of this. But it's just not the majority observation right now. And I'll explain some sociological impacts on that here in a minute. But I want to step back for just a second. I'm going to get you guys into your groups. And so I want you to remember these three possibilities I've given you, right? The three possibilities. Natural evolution, all natural forces, theistic evolution, that evolution is real, the biology of evolution is real, but God is the one driving it, and then intelligent design. I want you to think about those three options. Um, and I want you to remember the principles we discussed last week, or a few of the principles we discussed last week. Principles being, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. 
We believe that the Bible is inerrant. It is without error. We believe that God uses various literary devices all throughout the Bible. He uses poetry. He uses symbolism. He uses parables. He uses humor. He uses apocalyptic literature. He uses lots of different devices. And we believe that science will never prove God's word wrong, right? Christians should be proud scientists, right, uncovering God's creation. And then the last principle we had that I want to focus on was the Terry Fakes quote. Let the Bible be what it wants to be and say what it wants to say. If you remember those principles, I want you at your groups to kind of apply those principles to the different options I gave you of how God created man. How can you wrestle with those principles and those options to kind of come up with how to reason through this? And so what what I kind of ask you to do is take those principles and then say, with the different options you have, what makes sense to you? Right? What makes sense to you if those principles are true and those options are true? What makes sense to you in terms of how God could have created man? Talk about that for a little bit at your groups, and then we'll, we'll come back. All right, no, good deal. All right, let's come back, let's come back to the group. So, so I want to, one thing I forgot to mention um, like I said, I've given, you, I've given you a few categories, and there's all kinds of various interpretations in between. Uh, if the concept of theistic evolution is a very new one to you, and, 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 I, and let me just say, that's not the view I hold. I, I'm an intelligent design guy, and I reconcile things differently. But, but if the theistic evolution view is something that, is, that you just have, have never heard about or would like to know some more information about, there's a really interesting group that's it's really the leading Christian publication on this. It's a group called BioLogos, so B-I-O-L-O-G-O-S. Um, it's got some big names in it, and they've, they, they, their, their mission is not just about theistic evolution. They're trying to help bridge the gap between Christianity and science. And so these are normally leading Christians uh, who are working on a number of angles, but this comes up all the time. So there's some good resources on why they believe what they believe, how they reconcile the scriptures, all that. Tim Keller's a part of that group. Um, you've got, you've got some, some leading voices in that group, but uh, I'd say it's a good resource. Even, even like, I said, like I said, that's not my view, uh, but, but I, I, I pay attention to biologists because they do some good work, and it's helpful to understand uh, just different ways to think about the, the word. So anyway, I would just recommend those guys. So what I want to do is I want to come back then, and I want to add a couple, uh, three principles for us to really think through on this topic, as well as I think these principles will help you as you're just engaging in your faith in the world with all kinds of craziness that we deal with. Uh, but, but in particular, I think they apply pretty strongly to this topic. And so, you know, I just got done kind of articulating some various views. And, and one thing I think we could all say is that no one's teaching intelligent design in schools, right? I mean, that, that, and, and if, you, if you're an intelligent design advocate in the academic community today, you're going to get laughed out of the academic world. And I'll talk about something that occurred here on that in a little bit. Uh, evolution's just what's taught. It's, 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 it's kind of become the truth. Um, and, and like I said, there's some good reasons for that, some bad reasons for that. Uh, but, but one thing I want, I want to be careful about is, is the first principle I would give you is, is this principle. It says this, it says scientific revolutions are not often progressive. They don't tend to build upon old knowledge. 
but they destroy and replace old knowledge. They don't build upon old knowledge. They normally destroy and then replace old knowledge. And this principle comes straight out of the mouth of Tyler Tidwell. He's on Zoom. He was, he was working with me on this yesterday. This um, comes from a book, The Structure of Scientific, Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. And I think I pronounced that right. Uh, but I want to I I use some of the examples that this book does to talk about some scientific revolutions that occur. So I want you to understand this, what happens. Um, in, in humanities, as an example, right, whenever, whenever we're studying philosophy, whenever we're studying art, whenever we're studying these different things, you will take things that existed and then you continue to build upon and build upon and build upon. Uh, that isn't exactly how scientific revolutions work. And the history of science will, will prove that. So if you go back, this is the example we talked about last week. If you go back to the 17th century astronomy, the Ptolemaic theory of Earth-centered solar system was replaced by the Copernican theory of a sun-centered solar system. The Earth-centered system was not built upon. A new system, a new understanding of science completely replaced. It destroyed and replaced the old system. In 20th century astronomy, the view of the universe was that the, the universe was eternal and it was static. It was eternal and static. And that got replaced by what? What was the predominant theory that came out in the 20th century to replace an eternal and static universe? Yeah, yeah. the Big Bang Theory, right? Replaced it, right? It was this, this, this expanding universe that had a definitive starting time, right? We all accept that as truth today to a certain extent because we talked. That wasn't the, the truth claim very long ago. And I would say um, even Hawkins himself was walking back a lot of his Big Bang Theory work by the time he ended his life. But, but if you think about this, an old scientific truth was completely replaced. Right? That's how these scientific revolutions work. And our current, here's, a, here's one that we're current, currently wrestling with. In 21st century study of physics, Newtonian mechanics and quantum mechanics are both demonstrably true in our universe, yet they remain incompatible, incompatible in what they teach. The former supports, so, so Newtonian mechanics supports a common sense view of cause and effect, as well as time being fixed and absolute. But then quantum mechanics supports a view of randomness and interdeterminacy, as well as time being relative to each particular place. So there's been work over a hundred years now to try to reconcile Newtonian mechanics and quantum mechanics, and they can't reconcile the two. It's still a contradiction, yet both seem to be demonstrably true. So, so I just want you to see this, that as scientific revolutions occur, the history would tell us what one group of people thought to be absolute truth and would die for gets completely eliminated and replaced. It's not just built upon Right? Sometimes you see this absolute elimination and replacement occur. So here's a, a big takeaway from his book, and, and I'm going to actually just read you Tyler's takeaway from this because I can't improve upon it. It says, um, though the contrary is often professed, science is not a progressive cumulative affair in which our new knowledge builds on and advances our old knowledge. In fact, the opposite is true, with new scientific knowledge completely destroying and replacing old knowledge. Modern astronomers do not study the Ptolemaic theory anymore because it's now irrelevant. Two centuries hence, quantum mechanics may prove to be equally irrelevant, having been replaced with some contradictory competing theory. 
This stand in stark contrast with humanities, which is not only acceptable to study old knowledge and old thinkers, but it's expected. So just imagine this. Can anyone imagine a humanities professor who has never read Plato or Aquinas, but instead only authors published during his very own lifetime? Of course not. Two centuries hence, I can all but guarantee that Plato and Aquinas will still be both required and relevant reading within the humanities. But conversely, I can also guarantee that two centuries hence, half of what is in today's science textbooks will have been replaced with something else. I just want you to remember this principle, right? A lot of science is going to get replaced, right? Yet we hold so dear to things that are still theory and not law, right? I want you to remember that as a principle as you engage in the world. We are not bound by the current year we're in, right? Things will change uh, in, our, in scientific worlds and scientific communities. They have, they are, they will, right? I want you to always remember that. That's not how people operate, but that's how, how I want you to remember that. The second principle uh, I want to talk about is I want you to know that sociology impacts academics and scientific advancement much more than you would think. So how people interact with each other, pressures on people groups, how they interact with each other, it impacts scientific communities, academic communities advancement a lot more than you may think. And I want to give you some examples that are happening right now or have happened in the last year and a half. So everyone remembers this COVID pandemic thing, right? That's, that's happening right in our midst. So when the CDC originally came out with health guidance for the pandemic, the vast majority of the scientific community completely rejected the guidance that came out, right? The original guidance that came out was that no mask, masks aren't effective at all. I mean, Fauci was saying, don't wear a mask, right? The health community has studied vir uh, virology for, for centuries, right? They actually knew that was not the right advice, right? That, in no way, that was not the right advice. Yet they didn't correct. They didn't correct. It eventually got corrected, but there was a long period of time before the health community corrected some of the top government advisors on this. Second thing that happened during this time, um, you know, it was fascinating to watch the evolution that occurred between what the original idea of the source of the initial virus contamination was. Very first thought was that it was the Wuhan, uh, the Wuhan uh, lab leaked. That went way back in terms of a possibility and then eventually came forward again as a very likely possibility. And it got covered very differently all throughout the media and all throughout the scientific community all the time. Why was that? Right. Why was that? I listened to one of the most incredible academics uh, I've, I've, I know who who called a lot of this right at the very beginning. And one thing she said is she goes, you have to understand how sociology, how people impact what's going on in these communities. What I didn't realize is if you go to the source of the leak, which they still haven't proven where it came from, but it's very likely that it could have occurred from that lab in Wuhan. What I didn't realize is that that science lab in Wuhan was a very, very respectful science lab embedded deeply within the worldwide scientific community. So all the peers from all over the world who had a lot of respect for that lab did not want to call them out. 
and they didn't want to call them out because they were their friends. They didn't want to call them out because they didn't want the, the research that was going on there to be in jeopardy. There were social pressures involved in how the initial response occurred on that. There were social pressures involved in going against what, what viewed to be a scientific leader in Fauci at the very beginning, even though he eventually got corrected. There were a lot of social, social things involved. If you're a scientist, what do, you, what do you fail to lose if you go against the strain or you go against the grain on, on something of that nature? What, what could you lose? You, you lose your grants? You lose your friends? Think about them. Credibility. You lose the amount of de- all the debt you have from all those great student loans that put you through college that you're now working through, right? You, you, have the, you're, you have a lot to lose, right, to go against the grain, right, to, to, to actually propose something that is not the consensus view at any given time, especially in today's culture, you have a lot to lose. 30 years ago, you could write a peer-reviewed paper, you could go through a lot of work on that, you could get some credibility behind it. Now, if you go, something, if you go against the grain on something, the Twitter mob is just going to kill you. Right, just absolutely destroy you. And I'll show you an example of that here in a second. But this is occurring all over the place right now. The historian Niall Ferguson, and I'd encourage you to read anything Niall Ferguson writes. Niall Ferguson was talking about this in the academic world. Uh, and he goes, he goes, look, you have to understand that people's careers, their social structure, their peer networks, everything, everything is built upon this idea that you will maintain some sort of conformity to the norm. And once you step out of that, you have so much to lose that you tend to just not, right? If you look at what's happening in media publications, this same thing is occurring. And that's why you're getting such an incredible tilt to one way of thinking about this. People are very afraid to go against it, even if they know it to be true. The censorship that's occurring in academia right now is absolutely incredible. They just don't want to talk about it because it's too much to lose. Some are. Some who have tenure are. Uh, but, but it's something that's actually going on behind the scenes. Stephen Meyer, the guy who, who was the leading voice in intelligent design I was talking about, a uh, really bright guy, he uh, put together an academic work on the scientific evidence of intelligent design, and he submitted it to publication to the Biological Society of Washington, which is one of the most oldest and well-respected uh, biology publications in the academic world. His paper had been peer-reviewed by three biologists who all agreed that the paper merited publication. The editor of the paper published the paper, right? He published the paper. This was, this was back in the 90s. He pub- you, some of you guys may remember this, whenever this all hoopla broke out. He published the paper, and then all hell broke loose, right? The editor, who was not an intelligent design guy, he was an evolutionary guy, he published a paper based on the merit of the paper. It, there was good scientific findings in the paper. Everything broke loose. The editor of the paper ended up having to resign his post. The um, uh, American Association of the Advancement of Science issued a resolution saying there was no credible evidence of intelligent design, and they made it to where it could not be published anymore, right? And so I just want you to see that the inertia that occurs when there is a consensus understanding on something, how costly it can be to people to go against that. And so a lot of you guys ask me, how do I square my beliefs with what I see in museums on a scientific theory that has not been proven to be true? Like, I want you to take these two principles together, right? Sometimes it's really difficult 
All right, it's really difficult to go against things. And I want you to know, scientific theories get replaced all the time. Right? We just look at a narrow strip of time, but if you look over a long window of time, you'll see this happen over and over and over again. Tyler also, he, he, he talked about this. Um, I'm going to read you his, his consensus of, of Kuhnstant. He said, uh, also, contrary to popular sentiment, science is never a completely objective affair with every piece of data requiring a theory of interpretation. Kuhn showed that when faced with rival scientific theories that purport to explain the same piece of data, scientists in the heat of the moment usually have no other choice but to rely on some subjective standard in order to, chain, to choose between the rival paradigms. Eventually, one of the two competing theories slowly accumulates enough adherence to banish its rival, and it becomes codified scientific knowledge until it too is eventually replaced by some other theory that is seemingly more plausible. To the average 17th century astronomer, both the Ptolemaic theory and the Copernican theory had elements that seemed plausible and elements that seemed problematic. The modern-day theoretical physicist is faced with the same slew of rival theories that attempt to explain how space, time, and matter all relate to and affect one another. There's no purely rational, objective way for him to adhere to one theory over the other. So what he's saying is, is you see sociology, right? You see these pressures come into how different ideas are advanced. And it works just like a lot of other social movements do, that as you get more people coming on your side, more rival theories where you get more adherence, that tends to become what becomes codified in scientific knowledge. This has been happening for thousands of years, right? It's chronological snobbery to think that today we have figured everything out. Ab I mean, it's just absolutely snobbery on our part to think we've got it all answered and nothing will change. So the third principle I'm going to give you, and I'll do this one very quickly, is I want you to understand this. It is very difficult sometimes in our minds to square the Bible and science. And sometimes the easiest way to square it is to remember this principle. I never want you to underestimate the majesty of God. I never want you to underestimate the majesty of God. A lot of people would say intelligent design is impossible because there's no way that God can be that integrated. Right? There's no way God can be that powerful. There's no way God could actually put all these things in motion. But that is an underestimation of the majesty of God. If God so chose to use the evolutionary processes to guide creation, so be it. Right? He may have. I don't think so, but he may have. If God so chose to use this initial design as an intelligent design to create man, God can do that. Do not underestimate the majesty of God. Just because it doesn't square in your mind, don't think it doesn't in God's. I love the passage that says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. Right? God is at a very different level than what we can comprehend. I, want, I, I love this quote, and I've, I know I've read this quote before. But I'm going to read it one more time. I want, you to read, I want you to hear the way G.K. Chesterton explains something. And he's, he's actually proving a different point, but it works for this. Let me read this, and then we'll get out of here. It says, Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, Do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them.
It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. I think about this quote often, right? God may not tire of the things that we think are just natural processes. God may not tire of being the force that allows the sun to move on a daily basis. He may not tire of making all daisies, right? He may not tire of these things. He is great enough and powerful enough to accomplish his will in any way he so chooses. The third principle is probably the most important principle, regardless of how you square your understanding of creation, is never underestimate the majesty of God. I'd encourage you to end class at your groups for just a quick discussion, and I want you to take these three principles, right? That scientific revolutions are often not progressive. Scientific revolutions normally replace the old, not build upon something with new. Sociology impacts academics and scientific advancement, and that don't underestimate the majesty of God. I want you to take those three principles. I want you to just talk about how, how can those principles apply in your lives in this topic? How can they apply in your lives as you're going about and engaging the world? Right? How can you use that in your understanding of what's going on all around you? Feel free to talk about that. I'm going to pray. You guys can spend as much time in here as you would like. Yep, yeah, Lynn. Stephen Meyer, uh, M-E-Y-E-R. Yep. Um, but uh, let me pray for us. Talk as much as you guys like in here, and uh, we'll be back next week. Next week we'll cover, I think we're going to cover um, why so many people in the Old Testament had to die. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that next week, and that, that should be a fun one. So let me, let me pray. Uh, Father, I, I thank you so much for these men, and I thank you for the glory of your creation. We don't have all the answers for how you've done what you've done, but we know that your word is true and that you did create us, that you did create this earth and that it is good. You created us in order without chaos. We understand what has happened with sin has entered the world, and we understand your great story of redemption. May you help us understand the way this world works, the way the sinful fallen nature of the world may work sometime. May you help us understand science. May we understand it so that we can reveal the glory of your creation. We love you, Lord, and we trust in you, knowing that we will never know everything, but we trust in a great, great Father. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.